Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I learned from watching an interview with Craig Ferguson, the comedian, and he said, before you say anything, you got to ask yourself three questions. You got to ask yourself, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? And does this need to be said by me now? And this was genius to me because this was emotional intelligence and act exactly head blown. Believe me, that's how I felt because I was trying to figure out ways to apply the pause. And the pause is that you take a minute before answering Mm. that email that's got you all riled up or that you take a drink of water or walk around the block before you get in that confrontation that you feel rising up inside of you. And these three questions made it perfect structure. Billy, I ask myself these three questions every single day, multiple times a day. And that was a method that I could teach people and say, look, just learn these three questions. Once you got them down, you ask them to yourself and you ask them to yourself in meetings. You ask them to yourself when you're at home with your wife or your husband, you know, whoever. You ask yourself with, with your children when you're trying to teach your children something. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. This show is all about insights and explores how transformational moments of awakening have helped propel the lives and careers of remarkably successful people. These major breakthroughs teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. On this episode, I interview Justin Bariso, author of EQ Applied, The Real World Guide to Emotional Intelligence. Justin writes weekly on the topic of EQ, and over a million people read his monthly column in Inc.com. His work's been published in Time, Business Insider, and Forbes. On the show, Justin shares how relocating to Germany led to him working with businesses to help create more empathetic leaders. This helped to form a fascination into the world of emotional intelligence as he looked deeper and deeper into just how important it is. He shares his journey becoming a writer on the subject and ultimately how it evolved into his book. We discuss findings from his research and everyday examples that illustrate what EQ actually looks like when applied in the real world. He shares tips on how to make emotions work for you instead of against you, including how to take feedback, how to hit the pause button at the right time, and even how to be aware of how others may be using EQ to take advantage of you. I'm fascinated by this subject, so if you're anything like me, you're going to love learning from Justin on this episode of Inside Out. Justin Bariso, welcome to Inside Out. Thank you, Billy. Pleasure to be here. I'm super, super excited. I was just sharing with you a moment ago how near and dear 
the topic of emotional intelligence is to me, EQ is so vastly important. And it's kind of crazy to think that it really wasn't brought to the forefront until relatively recently. And so you've had a major role in helping to be a major voice when it comes to EQ and understanding it. And so I'm thrilled to dive into the topic. And before we go too knee deep into EQ, I'd love to hear your story because obviously something drew you to this topic and I want to get to that point, but let's start back, go back as far as you can and let's hear your story. I want to hear what made you kind of ultimately take the career path that you're on, but but often, oftentimes that starts even in childhood. So we'd love to hear your story, Justin. Wow. Okay. Well, it's funny because when I, uh, you know, you sent me some questions to look at and I thought, how far should I go back? He doesn't want me to go back to childhood, but now you're asking, you're, you're asking for it, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> do it. So childhood, it actually did start there because what I consider to be a little bit of unique background. So I'm multicultural. My father is a uh, first generation immigrant from the Philippines. My mother is Portuguese American. So she's got quite a few different European backgrounds, but her mom was from the Azores. So her mom was a first generation immigrant. Her dad, I never completely found out, Irish, German. So she's basically white okay. <laughs> with European background, but grew that. up in a, <laughs> she grew up in the Northeast, just about an hour south of Boston. If any of your listeners know Fall River, Massachusetts, small working class town, awesome town. We used to go back once a year to visit. And I felt like that was kind of like a second home for me. But where I grew up was um, Norfolk, Virginia, which is considered kind of like the beginning of the South. You know, the Virginia is kind of the beginning of the South. And I grew up in a very racially diverse area. I went to a predominantly black high school. So imagine a kid with a dad from the Philippines, a white mom from the Northeast living in the South, going to to school with mostly black folk, you know? And uh, so most of my friends growing up were were black, but, you know, we were pretty diverse too. And then the interesting thing was like, oh, I remember when I was young, one day was like, it just hit me one day, you know, you used to fill out those test forms and you had to fill out little bubbles. Are you white? Are you black? Are you Asian, Hispanic? And I just, you know, I had always filled out white, but then like one day I'm sitting there, it must've been like, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I'm like, well, I'm not really white. What am I? And so <laughs> I said, well, my dad's from the Philippines and I'm half Filipino. So that's my biggest percentage. So I filled out Pacific Islander. Mm. <laughs> and I came home that day and I'm like, hey, mom, I filled out Pacific Islander on my test form today. And she's like, what? You're not from the Pacific Islands? <laughs> and so, but that was like, that just kind of like sets the stage for like, because so much of EQ and emotion is tied into our background, it's tied into our experiences. And I had the, what I feel was a really unique set of experiences because I had all these different cultures that all saw the world from a different perspective. And, you know, I was kind of processing that and figuring out who I was. Like my wife, oh, okay, now I'm married. My wife, she's Polish German. We live in Germany. So I lived in New York for many, many years, but um, we moved to Germany when we had kids. So now I have those cultures you know, kind of mixing too. I always tell my wife, uh, she has kind of like a different personality for each language that she speaks. She speaks <laughs> a few different languages as everyone here in Europe does, you know. But basically, yeah, and, and that's kind of how I felt growing up. Like, you know, I would speak one way with my friends and maybe a lot of listeners actually can relate to this. I'd speak a different way with my parents and then a different way depending, you know, if I was in school, that kind of thing. And then I would ask myself like, well, who's the real me, you know? And so a lot of that was figuring out, it was a journey of figuring out who am I, you know, what, what, you know, 
do I relate to all these different people? Are those just different sides of me? Or is there a real me lurking underneath that? It's been a lifelong journey figuring that out. Man, I love all of that. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting insight that you had about just how your upbringing and your culture and who you surround yourself with and how you identify all play a role in our own emotions. And so walk me through sort of how you ended up, you know, going from this kid in the South who has mom from the North and, or, and, and father. So wait, is your mom from the North and your father Filipino then? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of reverse. Yeah. A lot of Americans marry Filipino women, but for me, my dad was from the okay, Philippines. Okay. Okay. And so, and so then how, how did you end up going? It's so interesting because I greatly appreciate the knowledge and understanding that we get by just knowing other people um, that have different walks of life, different backgrounds. And I'm curious. How is that? I mean, this show is all about insights. This show is all about those moments where we have these click moments, these aha moments that basically change the trajectory of our lives. And I'm, I'm wondering what moments stand out in your life? Because obviously you've had a, a really successful career and you've, you've written this book that's, that's done really well and you're, you're spreading so much wisdom about the concept of emotional intelligence. Give me the gap between your childhood and then where you are today. Sure. So, you know, we were talking a little bit before. We both kind of followed nonlinear paths. So for me, I did really well in school, but it wasn't my, um, in high school, I mean, but I had really no desire to go to university. And the reason why was I was from a very young age, like even as a teenager, I did like a volunteer ministry. And that was very important to me. So like teaching other people from the Bible and that kind of thing. And what I ended up doing is I moved to New York at 20 years old. And I worked at the world headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses in Brooklyn, New York as a volunteer. And I did that for 13 years. So people wonder, like, why would you even do that? Like, we didn't get a salary or anything. We basically got like a monthly stipend because we're, we're volunteers. But they took care of everything. Like, we had a nice place. Um, to live. I had an apartment in Brooklyn Heights, New York, if any listeners are from New York, with a view of the Manhattan skyline. But it was a very, very small apartment. It was like a one-room studio. My job every day was to go to a factory and physically make Bibles and and Bible-based literature and this kind of thing. So this is what I did for a number of years. (laughs) I did that for years, but this was a, a huge thing, okay? Because it wasn't a traditional business background, obviously, but you know, we viewed our work as very important, very mission driven. And we also had to um, work with, which I didn't even know what it was called at the time. I, I would never have referred to it as emotional intelligence, but we got a lot of training in management and how to be empathetic with the people that we're working with on how to give feedback, how to receive feedback, all these things. And so that really impacted me to the point where um, when I got married, my wife actually joined me there and, and we were there together. So it was 13 years in total, but then she got pregnant, which we weren't planning. And that was a big moment that just kind of shook up everything. It's like, hey, what are we going to do? And then we decided to move to Germany, where, which is where she was from. Immigrated to Germany from Poland when she was very young. But anyway, we moved to Germany. And now it was, I was kind of lost. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, we had some savings um, just based on like her work previously, because I wasn't making any money, right? But we had some savings from her work and we sold our car and we moved. And her parents were super, super helpful in uh, helping us get set up. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, what can I do? And I started 
teaching business English. I was like, you know, you see these foreigners, these digital nomads that move from country to country and they teach English, you know. So I would teach English to、um, German executives. But then I said, well, I have all this training in like、um, management and how to deal with people. And the one thing about German managers and executives, they speak a very, you know, relatively speaking, they speak a very high level of English. But、uh, they're very hard on their workers. There's no like commendation, praise, reward. It's all like no carrot. It's all stick. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and there's even a German phrase, and、uh, loosely translated, it says, "We don't curse you out." That's basically all the praise that you need. <laughs> and so I started applying all this stuff that I had learned about, you know, dealing well with people and motivating them with positive feedback because that makes the negative feedback easier. And you know, I started teaching these, and I started working as a consultant for these companies. And then I was just basically freelancing. And then I did a year with a company that hired me. Before I said, you know what, they wanted me to work more hours for the same amount of pay. And I was like, "Why don't I try this on my own?" And at the same time, that was the other pivotal moment. I had always loved to write. I had no aspirations of, be- of writing professionally, but I had.、Um, I was a big early in、um, LinkedIn ad- adopter. Like I, because、mm-hmm. you know, because I I had to start over basically in another country. So what do you do? So I started building my network. I used what LinkedIn. What year was that when you were really into when you got started with LinkedIn? I mean, it wasn't like very early, but for me,、um, it was early with the with the publishing platform. So it was 2011, I guess, is、that、when is, I no no that is early.、Yeah. That's early. I mean, like, is that early? Cause, okay, because <laughs> LinkedIn, as we know it, and I've I've been doing a lot of studying on LinkedIn. I'm a student of the platform, but I've been on it since 07. But I only started taking、okay. it seriously three months ago, four months ago. Oh wow! Right around the right around the、yeah. time you, you. In fact, our conversation was probably one of the first conversations I had when I started taking it seriously. I start honestly. I started looking for people who were doing things on LinkedIn. You were one of those people. Obviously, 2011. We're talking. I mean, we're you know, this is 2020. So yeah, I mean, you're an early adopter. You were, yeah. You might not have been,、uh, you know, doing, but the the platform wasn't what it was then, and isn't what it is today. So anyhow, I'm just curious when that sort of、no. timetable. Okay. So carry on though. I'm super curious about all this. And I went all in in LinkedIn originally just to like build my network and kind of see okay who who can I meet and it was Germany it was US it was everybody it was just building the network with it with the idea of like trying to find ideas and and you know that kind of thing.、Uh, but then LinkedIn started their publishing platform and I'm not even sure what year that is. I could look it up, but it's probably around 2014 somewhere around there. And I'd always like to write and I'd done a, I started a blog which no longer exists but I started a blog when I came about like it was called. Far from New York, and it was the difference between New York and living in Germany.、Um, and I was like, man, I really enjoy writing, you know. And then LinkedIn came out. This is like, all right, let me start writing from a business perspective. I'm a freelancer, so I'm my own one-person company. So let me write about what it's like to work for myself and the lessons I learned and the things that I was,、um, you know, learning. And I still wasn't writing about emotional intelligence. It was just、mm. all about like it was more cross-cultural back then, maybe empathy and stuff like that, but not in that context of EQ. And then I met Jeff Hayden, who. Is one of the top over the past ten years. He's probably the top contributor at Inc. dot com. So for any listeners who know Inc. magazine, it's a magazine that's、uh, geared towards、um, entrepreneurs and business owners. And、um, he was an awesome guy. Still is. We're still. He's been a mentor of mine till now. 
And um, we connected. I mean, he's just a nice guy. He would basically answer, I think, anybody that even though he's got over, well, at the time he had like 300,000 followers on LinkedIn. I think he has a million or two million now. But he answered my question out of the blue in uh, LinkedIn in mail. He had worked at like a, a book publishing plant too. So that was kind of like my my ends. Like, hey, I used to do that, you know. But then it was super helpful. I told him I loved his writing, which was true. I used to use his articles as like springboards back when I used to do uh, English teaching, you know. And then... Um, I said, hey, do you mind after slowly, after like six months of uh, conversations here and there, I said, would you mind checking out my stuff and give me some pointers? Sure. Any any chance you think I have writing for Inc.? Oh yeah, I'll put in a good word for you. Recommended me to uh, to um, the the who at the time was the executive editor there, um, and she's still there, she's still my editor, Laura Lorber, and um, we just hit it off. And you know, I was a nobody that a single freelancer guy (laughs) that um, had never really written professionally. You know, at first my commitment was six articles a month, which was huge for me. I was like, oh, how can I even do that? You know, I was still teaching and consulting at the time. Eventually I was able to do the six a month. And then when I I left the job and I went full-time into writing and consulting, I said, you know what, let me, let me, do what I call a sprint because I knew of some writers that were writing like 20 to 30 articles a month. So basically an article every day. I was like, how do you even do that? Right. I spoke to Inc about it and it's like, okay, well, this is how it works. Said, okay, well, let me try it because in order to learn, you need data. Right. And so I needed to write, write, write and collect the data and see what went well and see what people liked. And my very first article on Inc was about empathy. It was what Ooh. leaders get wrong or why why leaders get empathy wrong. And then, so of course, I gravitated towards those topics because that's what I was consulting on anyway. But the gap I found as I started researching more and more and relating it to emotional intelligence, like, oh, this is what people call it, emotional intelligence. And there was a gap in the literature of like the real practical. Like I never saw someone say, well, this is what emotional intelligence looks like in real life. They might tell like one story. But like the news, you know, I would see a news story and I would see uh, an email that a CEO wrote and it went viral. Like that was one of my first articles that did really well. Howard Schultz, who was CEO of Starbucks at the time, wrote this um, great, great email after one of the one of the stock market crashes. I think it was after the great fall of China. And I said, hey, it's a great email, but it's also an example of emotional intelligence, real life. And that article got like, I can't remember, but I think six or 700,000 views. Wow. And that was my first experience with like, oh, People like to read this. And so over the course of the next year, so I did a sprint of writing a bunch of articles and seeing what people, you know, what resonated with people. And then that became the focus of my work and eventually it got up to like a million readers a month on Inc. Um, got to write for some other outlets like Time and Quartz and, you know, some of these others. And then came the book, you know, because it was like, well, what's the next progression? Well, I want to go a little deeper in this topic. I love it. And there's so much there. One of the things that stands out, which I'm super intrigued about, is I don't think this would have happened in the way it happened if you didn't move to Germany. And maybe I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is that there was actually a need. If, if I'm going to be super blunt about it, Germans... Notoriously, historically, are very direct, and I'm speaking yeah. in general terms. They're very direct, very orderly, very, you know, and and maybe aren't as likely, especially in a professional setting, to be the feel good type or show show maybe show the emotional side. And it sounds to me, and it's not that they aren't in touch or that they don't care or that they aren't are incapable of feeling. We all are. We're humans. We all have emotions. And I, and I, I say all of this with nothing but love. I'm, I'm, I have German heritage like you and, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm speaking more generally speaking, but you said, you know, these high level executives, people in Germany, you were seeing and experiencing 
people that maybe could use a little bit of help understanding how to have the balance with their emotions. And, you know, you also got to think culturally, I'm, I'm curious, how far do you take that? But, but I, but the insight there is what fascinates me is that you went to another country, you, you're out of your element, you started writing about sort of the nuance and difference culturally. It's not New York, even your blog, this isn't New York or not. What was it? it, it, it far, was the name? far from New York. Far, far from New York. <laughs> and so I, I love that and how that really shifted over into what your effectively your, your, your life's work has been, which is understanding how to talk about emotional intelligence. Had you not have all these chain of events happen, we don't know. We don't know what it would have looked like, but I'm sure you know, you're know you grateful for the experiences that you've had. I'm curious if I'm reading into it right or what your thoughts are on no, it. No, that's totally it. And like you said, it came out of a need. And I never, ever, ever would have, I don't think, I ever would have chosen to work for myself. I mean, I came from a job that was, um, you know, even though it was a different kind of job, but it was very secure. You know, I was there for over a decade. I loved what I did. I left and I basically now my my focus shifted. You know, my ministry was still important to me, but my focus now all of a sudden was like, okay, I got to make money, you know, enough to support my wife and, and child, right? And so I just wanted um, a basic job, something that I could, you know, have a, a good steady paycheck. But out of necessity, it forced me into, like you said, finding a need, filling that need. But then once I got that taste of working for myself and being able to set my own hours and being able to make my own rules, it was hard for me now to work for a company. And I didn't realize that. And so I just did this one year with a company and I was trying to balance both because I only worked four days a week for them. And then I would do a lot of my writing on Fridays or in the evenings. And I liked my job with them, you know, but then when they were like, Okay, well, we want you to do the full five days, but they didn't want to. They didn't want to pay me more. It was it's a long story. It was like they were a small company and they were trying to like balance stuff too. But to me, that was like, well, I was already feeling the itch of like doing more of the writing and focusing more on that, and like um and again going out on my own. So that was just kind of like the push I needed. So it's kind of like, well, thanks, but no thanks is what I need. And again, it just kind of forced me out there. And now it's like you know my company's not big. It's you know I have three employees, but I don't think I would ever go back to working for somebody else just because it just gives you, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had a similar experience. You're out, you're yeah. out on your own now too. Yeah. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. But for listeners, sure. it's, uh, it's not for everybody. But for me, once I got that taste, it was like, you know, just to have the, the freedom, the creative freedom, and also um, the, the freedom and control over your life. There, there's nothing that can really replace that. And yeah, I mean, there's, and there's two things I want to talk about what you just said, which is it was out of necessity. That's the first thing, which I'm super curious yeah. about. And then the second thing, which I'm fascinated by is that you had this article that went viral. It was about a topic that you ultimately realized people, it resonated with people. And so you ran with that and you took that and you said, okay, this, this works. This obviously has an audience. And then you, you really structured kind of your, the, the next chapters of your life based upon what worked. And I, I think for anyone listening that is an entrepreneur or a solopreneur or somebody that's starting out on their own, this is the value of experimenting, trying new things and, and seeing what hits. Because if something hits, then all of a sudden you know you can do that. Rinse, repeat, do it do it again and, and you know continue to expand upon whatever it is that worked. And so you know, at the time, did you realize or when did you realize that, okay, this worked, was it an immediate thing? And then when did you say, okay, I want to keep doing this 
to really stoke the flames and, and build the fire. Cause you had the, the kindling, even though it's great kindling with a million views or whatever, you, you built that into a fire, which you, you could have said, okay, that's great. Now I'm going to do a different topic, but you had the, the good sense to expand upon that. Right. Well, like I said, my work and my background gravitated towards those topics anyway. And I discovered that much of what I was writing about, that's what this is, is emotional intelligence. And I think that's one reason why I didn't know so much about it back then is because, like I said, there was this gap of relating emotional intelligence to real life. And so I had a couple of articles like that. Um, and what I used to do, and this will help explain, um, it ties into some of the stuff you said and also helps explain how I got big, um, a big following on LinkedIn, what I used to do is I would write, I don't think I've ever told this to anyone on a podcast before, but I would write an article. So the way it works with Inc, Inc gives you the rights to your own stuff. So you can repost, I could repost any article I write for Inc two weeks later, but I just have to put a link, you know, it was originally on Inc, whatever. I thought, well, LinkedIn's publishing platform, you know, I had kind of started to see how like the algorithms worked and, you know, newsy topics did really well on LinkedIn too. So what I would do is I would write an article for Inc. And I would basically rewrite the article for LinkedIn because I can't post the same article on LinkedIn until two sure. weeks later. Right. So I would write the same topic, but I would come up with a different angle and just, you know, hit like different points. So like, let's go back to that Howard Schultz email. It's emotionally intelligent for these two reasons. And in my draft, I would have like five reasons. So I would focus on, you know, maybe three strong ones or I think it was just two actually for ink because that's the attention span nowadays, right? People just yeah. want like something quick. Give me something quick. What can I learn from it? So I would do an article with two points for ink and I would do an article with two points for LinkedIn and the article would go viral on LinkedIn too. And then I did that a few times and I started to see that it worked. And so I would do this over and over again. Uh, uh, Ryan Holiday, who's a, you know, he's a, a best-selling author. He talks about this technique as newsjacking, which is basically, this is the stuff you want to write about anyway. But if you write about it, you know, you can use good SEO or whatever, and maybe you get X thousand, you know, well, let's put it this way. You can get a lot of readers, but it takes a long time to build that following. Newsjacking, you're writing about the same topics, but you're saying, hey, Here's an example of this that just happened. So I have, you know, all these ideas already from my training, from my uh, management experience, from my teaching managers how to do this in Germany. And I would say, oh, this is why this email so well. Or I would see um, a company that, you know, I know you used to work for Tesla. So Elon Musk, you know, he's he's put his foot in his mouth a couple of times more lately here. But Elon, you have to you have to recognize he's a master of building an audience of connecting with people. You know, he has something that we probably didn't see since Steve Jobs. And so I would write about these examples too, which nobody was doing. Nobody was connecting emotional intelligence. And this is something I explore in the book, for example, was Steve Jobs really emotionally intelligent? Well, emotional intelligence is a spectrum, okay? It's like intelligence. You know, you can have someone that's an intelligent and Howard Gardner, um, the professor wrote about this. You can have a person that's intelligent, but you can also have someone that's you know, more skilled at math, someone that's more skilled at languages, someone that's totally skilled at, uh, or that has brilliant talent in music. And so that to me, this is what, and this is what I write about is this is what emotional intelligence is. You have, you know, people like Steve Jobs who were, um, you know, great at connecting with people's emotions, at making people feel things when they watch commercials, when they use a product. But was he so mostly intelligent with dealing with others? Well, that's a whole big topic too, because yeah, right, um, right. I'd say he is. He just kind of, he knew how to push buttons and use things. It might not be the way most of us think of emotional intelligence, but he kind of did know how to, how to say and do things to get people to do what he wants. But that's another topic. 
Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's go there though because I think it's an important topic, and and we talked a little bit before we started recording about how we can use emotional intelligence in a variety of ways and people throughout history, even in your book, you, you reference Hitler had emotional intelligence and emotional intelligence means you understand emotions. You understand yourself, understand how you interact with other people, how you're perceived. And, I mean, there's so many variables at play when we think about how we use our emotions to, in some cases, manipulate people. And I think maybe that's where you're going a little bit with, with Steve Jobs. Before we get into that, though, because there's something else that I, I, I like super excited about. Like you, uh, with with what you talked about with newsjacking, with, and I know that's something that you mentioned that Ryan Holiday, you learned that from him. And you, you also talked about, you know, taking people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or other people like that. What's your recipe? Because you, you, it sounds like you've given some of the pieces of the recipe, but for anyone interested, and I, I, I'm, I'm learning myself, so I, I, I'm super excited. And although this isn't necessarily the intention of the show to, to understand, you know, the, the nuance of being an author and an, and, and a, and an ink contributor and writer, but I think anyone that's doing something on their own should think about finding a recipe for success and the recipe for success will be different depending on what you do. But what I'm hearing is that you've developed a recipe through pulling a few different pieces. What else is part of your recipe and how did that develop over time? Sure. Yeah. So I got to think over that for a minute because it's, it's something that did kind of evolve over time. Yeah. So, so going back to what I said a few minutes ago, this was a gap. This was something missing that you know, people maybe heard of emotional intelligence, but it, it was becoming more important. Like you talked about recently, we've seen kind of a resurgence. And I think it's due to a lot of things. I think it's due to a, a newer generation, millennials and younger, that had never heard of emotional intelligence until probably the next couple of years. Also, you know, just the current climate of society, you know, and, and what we see basically all over the place. So this was, was a need. And there was a need to see examples of it in real life. So as I started writing uh, more about that, so yeah, my 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 formula was basically find newsy topics that are already like people are already talking about, and you can't do it. That was the thing too. Like, um, you can't do it for everything. Like, sometimes you know you might be tempted to force like, well, this is kind of emotional intelligence, you know. But to be honest with you, like nobody wants to 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 read that, you know. It's like sure. they, they can tell you that you're trying it. to do that. Exactly. So like I talked earlier about doing a sprint. To collect data. So I wrote 30 articles a month for four, I think it was four months, three or four months. And um, that gave me the the data to see, okay, here's what works well. Here's what resonates with readers. And then I got to the point where I went back to the six articles a month, between six and 10. So I was writing, um, you know, one to two articles a week. I was mainly writing, oh, here's a great piece of advice that someone gave me to, to an help answer your question, pass it on to listeners. Find the balance in writing, and we could also say creating, if you're creating a product, find the balance in doing what you want to do with what other people want to see. Mm. Uh, for me, it was what what I want to write about with what other people want to read about. So I'll be honest with you, the news topic of the day was not necessarily the thing I wanted to write about on that day, but I needed to do that to be able to buy the time and freedom to be able to um, write about the deeper Topics and what happened is I wrote enough of these articles and you know had enough success. It's like okay, original idea was just to take a bunch of these articles or at least the concepts from them and put them into a book. Um, but then I worked with a publisher 
uh, who was great. I actually self-published, and that's a whole no- – we could do another podcast on on why I decided to self-publish and why I'm happy that I did. Um, but I wanted it to be – to look as if it was a traditionally published book. And so I hired a, a firm to help me do that. So basically, instead of a publisher hiring me and giving me an advance to write a book, I hired this firm and I paid them – a good amount of money out of pocket, knowing that then I could keep the the profits where the book did. And they, they're called Page Two. They're actually a Canada company, Canadian company. Mm. Um, and Jesse Finkelstein, one of the principals there, she helped me turn my idea of what was just going to be a really surface level, here's what EQ looks like in real life, to, no, let's dive deeper. Let's get into some of the research and take the research and then, you know, she got me to come up with these ideas. She just asked the right questions. And it became a two-year project of deep dive into EQ research and making that now accessible combined with, well, here are some stories that illustrate it from my own life, from Steve Jobs, from Thomas Keller, a famous chef that uh, took feedback really well, and um, Jeff Bezos and what he did with Amazon and putting all that together so that emotional intelligence wasn't just this abstract concept, but it was something that people could relate to. And with very simple tips, because going back to the attention span, you know, we want quick and dirty tips, right? Sure, I'd love to be more emotional intelligent, but I can't sit here at my desk for like five hours a week and do exercises or, you know, do this or that. I need quick and simple tips. And so, that was also a gap, you know? So I would take stuff like I learned from watching an interview with Craig Ferguson, the comedian, and he said, before you say anything, you got to ask yourself three questions. I can't do his, I wish I could do his accent. I can't do his accent. <laughs> That's um, right. We'll imagine. <laughs> you got <you> to gotta <laughs> ask yourself, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? And does this need to be said by me now? And this was genius to me because this was emotional intelligence and act exactly head blown. Believe me, that's how I felt because I was trying to figure out ways to apply the pause. And the pause is that you take a minute before answering Mm. that email that's got you all riled up or that you take a drink of water or walk around the block before you get in that confrontation that you feel, you know, is rising up inside of you. And these three questions made it perfect structure. Billy, I ask myself these three questions every single day, multiple times a day. And so this was, and that was a method that I could teach people and say, look, just learn these three questions. Once you got them down, you ask them to yourself and you ask them to yourself in meetings. You ask them to yourself when you're at home with your wife or your husband, you know, whoever. You ask yourself with, with your children when you're trying to teach your children something. And I ask myself those questions. And so stuff like that easy, simple stuff to put in. I mean, it's, it's not really easy to put in a practice. It takes practice. You have to do it over and over again, but it's, it's simple. It's easy to understand. Oh man, seriously, dude. I'm just like, drop the mic right now because there's a few, there's, there's like every time you talk, I'm like, okay, there's like 10 things I want to talk about. One thing for sure is the data points that you got because you did this high intense volume of work, which then gave you a bunch of data, what worked, what didn't work. You went back to the more, let's call it sustainable approach because you couldn't do that. I mean, maybe you could, but it would probably be, you have three children I know. And so it'd probably be hard uh, (laughs) unless you had more since your book. But, But my point being is you worked your butt off creating a ton of content, ton of, ton of writing. You got all this feedback and then you knew what to do. And one of the things that is clear as day is people want quick and dirty tips. They want they want it to be spoon fed. They don't have long, long, uh, you know, very long attention span. And if we give them something actionable that they could take with them right away. And, and the other point is, it doesn't need to be your own unique idea. Like Justin doesn't need to invent it. You could repackage it. You could retell it. You could highlight. You're not giving credit or not that you're not saying where you got it from. But you, 
you talk about how you apply it in your own life and how important it is. Because, I mean, original ideas, they're great, but we don't always need to come up with our own original, unique idea. We can share something that's been powerful in our own lives. And this you're, you're using this every single day for, as an example, these, these three questions. And I love, first of all, I love those three questions. Now I'm going to be using those. But then secondly, I love the takeaway here, which is you're providing something of value that people can use instantly. So... Okay, let's get back to where I was, where we were going to go, which is this whole concept. And now you start, you got me thinking about feedback. So we're going to do feedback after this. But, but <laughs> sure, what yeah. I want to talk about now is this whole concept of how we use emotional intelligence to our advantage and sometimes to our advantage in a negative way. And so your book talks a lot about this. I want to let you talk more specifically about how we come to find a balance with how we use emotions and also how some people end up using it the wrong way. And also how we, in some sense, need to defend ourselves against people who are manipulating our emotions to get what they want. And so I'll, I'll stop there and let you take it. Sure. We hear, well, we hear a lot of talk about um, fake news today, right? From both sides of the political spectrum from, you know, basically everyone has talked about fake news in the past few years. And something I saw that was really interesting real life example was yesterday. So right now, to set some context for those who might be hearing this later, we're, we're living through this horrible situation where George Floyd, black African American man was basically killed recently by a police officer. He was unarmed. So basically, without unpacking all of that, there's a lot of angry people out there. There have been protests. But yesterday, early morning Eastern time, the top trending thing on Twitter was I think it was called Blackout DC. And it was just all talking about how the police and, and the government are using jammers to like, so no one can like share anything on social media. And there's been explosions all over DC, which, you know, there were some fires and stuff, but it was being painted out to be this picture of something that was completely inaccurate. And then um, like two hours later, another hashtag started trending, which was like safe DC. And um, I, I still actually don't know because I haven't followed it today. I've had a, a pretty busy day. But it seems like there was some type of network of bots that was obviously set up by someone to kind of manipulate these hashtags to spread misinformation. Mm. And of course, we've heard stories about this in the past, over the past few years. But basically, this is a manipulative, a, a dark, what we call the dark side of emotional intelligence is... Whoever set this up knew that people are already in a very emotional state. We act when we're panicked or when we're in an emotional state, we act differently than we would otherwise. So they knew this was going to spread. If people see that, they're not going to verify is this true. They're just going to start spreading stuff. And they were able to actually manipulate what's appearing as top trending on Twitter. They were able to manipulate people's feelings and emotions. I mean, fortunately, it got caught pretty early where people were like, no, this is wrong. And I see there's like cut and paste going on here. But what if they didn't, you know, and we talked about like deep fakes nowadays where they're using artificial intelligence to like make it look like someone said something that they didn't. And so you need, as you alluded to, we all need to build our own emotional intelligence so that we can tell if someone's trying to manipulate us because there are people using that same skill to try and manipulate others. And the only way we're going to be able to tell if someone is manipulating our own emotions, you know, it's not necessarily something wrong. If someone's a good speaker and, you know, a motivational speaker or whatever, and they're, and they're tapping into our emotions, that's not, not necessarily bad if it's in harmony with our values and our principles, you know, and that's also another a whole discussion. But basically the, the real danger is, you know, like what Hitler did, you know, where he tapped into fear 
of people mm-hmm. of the Jews and and try to make them a scapegoat, and then he was able to manipulate people to do horrible atrocities. So building your own emotional intelligence can help protect you from people manipulating you in that way. Right, and I think history, as you've indicated, is littered with instances of times when things look very dire, they look bleak. You know, in the case of World War One ended, people lost their jobs, and ultimately Hitler used, as you said, the Jews as a scapegoat saying, oh, well, they're taking all your jobs. And I, this is something you talk about in the book, which I, I find so incredibly insightful, is that he's it's it's interesting he's using the news and using the current or was using the current state of affairs to manipulate other people and the other thing that that you just talked about was this whole concept of deep fake and one thing that's interesting to me is you and when i say you i'm just speaking generally speaking we collectively have the ability to read people And reading people, what I mean by that is having an intuitive, you could see somebody, you see their body language, you see their mannerisms, you see eye contact or no eye contact. All of these little intricacies that exist between a human interaction and with, speaking of current state of affairs, we now now have the ability to see people through video. If we were going through this pandemic and all we had was phones, it would be a very different thing because I could yeah. see your face. You could see my face. And even though we're not in the same room, we're not even in the same country or city or any of that, we can see each other. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the nuance of being either, I don't, I mean, you could call it intuition or you could call it, um, you know, intuitively reading people and understanding people. How does that tie into somebody's emotional intelligence? Yeah. So, one of the big, we, we split emotional intelligence into four facets. So you talk about self-awareness, understanding self, self-management, being able to manage your own emotions. And now you get into the other people, which is social awareness and um, relationship management. And social awareness is doing exactly what you just said, being able to read people, to understand people, to understand their motivations. Now, no one does that perfectly. So let's make that clear first. But what empathy is all about is being able to understand person to an extent, but also recognizing we need more, more data again, more information. So asking the right questions, you know, example of that, let's say you come in the office and, um, you know, one of your colleagues who, you know, well is acting totally different. So, you know, you can read if you have a certain level of uh, social awareness, something's wrong here. They're having a bad day. They got a bad piece of news. Something happened. And so, you know, depending on your relationship with that person, you may ask them, you may choose not to engage with them. But, you know, then it just kind of depends, you know, if they are forthcoming with you, then your level of social awareness and relationship management allows you to be able to have a conversation, hopefully that you can help somehow that at right. least at the very least you can be the, the listening ear that they need because a lot of people that's a lot of times that's what people need at that moment right and now we can dive a little bit more into to empathy I don't want to talk too much about that depending on you know which way you want the conversation to go but with empathy I just say one thing we all want empathy from others right and we all think we're most of us or many of us think we're pretty good at exercising empathy but the moment where we need empathy the most you know, when we disagree with someone is, is where we often fail to show it. And, um, you know, this is part of that, you know, um, that social awareness or relationship management is being able to show empathy at the, at the times when it's most needed. And just one quick example about that, we're, we're dealing with COVID-19 right now. So we got protests, we got COVID, we got a lot of stuff going on in the world right now. So let's say you're a manager, let's say you are a business owner or a business leader. 
and you come in and you're, you know, you have to have a hard conversation with your team and somebody, uh, let's say you have a one-to-one and they're, you know, <laughs> they come at you with what they're dealing with right now. You know, you view it as a complaint because in your mind, it's like, well, look, I just talked to somebody else and they got way worse stuff to deal with than what you're dealing with. My problems are way worse than yours. And so that's your, your instinct is to respond that way. And even if you don't say that, you're thinking it, guess what? It's going to come out in the way you deal with that person, right? 100%. So empathy. <laughs> so empathy is not just about being nice and compassionate to them, okay? Sure, those are great things, but empathy is about, okay, this is how I feel about what they're telling me right now. How can I find a way to relate to them? So it's probably not relating to their situation because you already think, well, their situation's not that bad. But if you can relate to the feeling, the feeling that they have that they're overwhelmed, they don't know how to handle this, and you say, well, man, that, you know, in, in your mind, you say, I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. What would I want someone to tell me or, or you know, what would help me? And you say, okay, tell me more. Is there anything I can do to help? Just that process, just that one, um, that one piece of like asking more and being interested in them. We say empathy begets empathy. So if you had responded any other way, you know, again, not even saying it out loud, but just like thinking it and it's like, ah, you kind of dismiss this person. You're just going to leave them in a worse state than when they came in. They're not going to be motivated to do anything for work. They're not going to be, you know, it's not going to do anything for your relationship. But just the simple step of tell me more. Is there anything we can do to help? You know, many times, sometimes they'll say, no, not really, but thanks for listening, you know. And now they're leaving the conversation in a much better state of mind. They're going to be more motivated than they would have been otherwise. And you're, I, I call it bringing out the best version of themselves. It's still, you know, not their best version. Uh, I, or I'm sorry, it's, it's still not um, the best version that they'll ever be. But it's the best version of them in this moment when they're dealing with this thing, just with the simple act of listening to them and them walking away and being able to feel better. And, and that's going to make their day better. And it's going to make everybody's situation for that day better. And then if you actually act on it, and this is one of the topics you talk about with, with empathy, maybe you could kind of explore the different layers or you've, you've established some, some labels for different types of empathy. There's empathy we act upon versus just, just first identifying and understanding. Can you talk us through the different versions of, of empathy? Sure. So I didn't invite the, uh, I didn't invent these either, but uh, Daniel Goleman and Paul Ekman, I guess Paul Ekman um, was really uh, kind of the one that, that broke these down first, but you have um, cognitive empathy, which is just being able to understand what another person is thinking. And that can help you in all kinds of ways that you can imagine, um, you know, understanding how end users are going to use your product, understand what problems um, other people are having, your customers, your clients, whoever, your, your spouse, your relative, your friend, just understanding what's going on in their head. And a, that starts with asking questions, you know, and, and, you know, once you ask people things and you learn about people, then, you know, you can start to read similar situations better in the future. And you'll make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And sometimes you might, oh, I really didn't think you were in a good mood today. Oh, no, why'd you say that? You know, oh, I don't know. Um, so you'll make mistakes. But you, the more practice you get at it, the better you'll get at it. Sure. That's the cognitive empathy. Then there's the emotional empathy, which is what we just spoke about a few minutes ago, relating to the feeling the other person has. So it's not the situation, it's relating to the feeling. And that's probably, um, if you can only have one of them, that's probably the one you want to have. Because if people feel understood and they feel um, that you relate to them on an emotional level, then guess what? They'll do all kinds of stuff for you. And again, you got to be careful not to use that uh, for bad, but you know, ho hopefully use it in a good way. So that's the emotional side. And then there's the compassionate empathy um, or empathic um, concern, which is where you actually 
what you just mentioned. You go the extra step and you do something. So you may find out something about a person. You might do the listening thing. Okay, have a nice day, you know, or you can actually do something to help them. And it could be something very small, but just even a small token that you want to help make their day better. Guess what? It goes, it does so much. I think I write in the book about Douglas Conant, who was, um, he took over as CEO as Campbell's uh, Foods and Soups at one point. And he would do this thing where he would write little sticky notes as the CEO of the company. I think um, there's a statistic out there that he wrote 10,000 sticky notes over a certain number of years. But a personal note written, you know, and and saying something that he appreciated about that person in their work. And how do you feel when you walk in the day and you see a note from the CEO of the company? It does wonders for your self-esteem, for your motivation, all the above, you know. And it's a small gesture, but he did it over time. It's a compound interest in a way. You know, I think you mentioned yeah. he did 10, 10 to 15 notes a day, but you do that over several years and thousands upon thousands of people are now touched because you took the time to think about somebody else. So I, I do want to get back to feedback, but before we do, there is one thing I want to uh, make sure that I don't leave out, which is just what advice do you have for somebody that wants to practice being more aware of their emotions and having more emotional intelligence. What are some of the, one of the things I know your book is so great at is the application of emotional intelligence. And and I, I really appreciate that approach that you took because it is so important. It can be sort of an abstract topic. It's a, it's a feel good topic, one nice to talk about, but how do I actually put it into practice? And so what are some of the you call it quick and dirty, but like, what are some of those tips for those for the audience members that do want to actually become more, more, you know, intelligent emotionally? Sure. So before the quick and dirty, just kind of getting in the habit of analyzing yourself and analyzing your other person, uh, the other person becoming a little psychotherapist. So the way this works, ideally, you could see flaws in yourself, you could see when your emotions take over and you do or say something that you wish you hadn't. Because it's okay for emotions to take over sometimes. We're human and emotions should take over sometimes. But when we get into trouble is when we allow our emotions to move us into a direction that, that we regret later. It would be great if we could identify those things ahead of time. But that's usually not how it works. Even for myself where I'm writing and working with this every day, um, I make a mistake. I have what's called an emotional hijack. I lose my temper or I do something that I wish I could take back. When those moments happen, analyze. You know, take some moments, take, take some quiet moments that evening the next day and say, why did I react that way? What did I do wrong? Mm. And you're going to do it again the next time and you're going to do it again a third time. But hopefully after the fourth, the fifth, the sixth times, if you analyze every single time, you'll start to catch yourself in the moment and then you can develop some strategies. And that's where the quick and dirty uh, tips come in. What are the strategies you can do? What's the thing that you can remind yourself right now? So we talked about the three questions, right? Do I need to, uh, does this need to be said by me right now? Another one um, that, that your listeners from the business world will be familiar with, and I never do this because remember, I used to work making Bibles. <laughs> but once I started studying business, I learned about disagree and commit, which disagree and commit, I guess, started with um, Intel, but Amazon has really popularized it. Disagree and commit says, okay, I'm going to tell you why I don't agree with this decision, and I'm going to argue my point, for lack of a better word, argue, and let's see if we can come to a, a, a different decision. But if we don't, If you're the team leader, for example, and your team says, no, this is the way to do it, and we're confident, and this is definitely it, then you say, okay, I'm going to disagree and commit. And um, I've used this also with my wife, okay? So like, (laughs) oh, honey, I don't think we should go to this restaurant. It's going to be horrible. No, no, I want to go. Okay, so disagree and commit. So you've said your piece. 
but now we're going to let the other person have their way. Are you going to let your team have their way? You can't sabotage it now. You can't hope that it fails. You can't show by your body language. And this was really hard for me to do sometimes, you know, but now you have to commit to it and try to make it work. And you know what? One of two things happens. Either it works and great, everybody's happy, or it fails. Um, and you don't say, I told you so. Because the other person said, well, he tried, he or she tried their best to make this thing work. And so that improves your relationship. So you got the three questions, you got disagree and commit. And then one more I'll share with audience is um, the media player, which, uh, you know, I, I go into in depth in the, the book. It's treating your emotions as if you're like watching Netflix and you could press the pause button and say, let me stop mm, before I say or do I anything. love this one. I'm so glad that you're talking about this. <laughs> no, no, because it, it's so, dude, it is so important and i've i haven't labeled it like you have but i i've talked about it and i Mm -hmm. i share in in the trainings that i've done just how important this is and so if you were distracted before he started talking about this listen right now because what he's about to share is so amazing yeah so that's that's the pause button or use the fast forward button i love the fast forward button which is about to make a decision it could be an in the moment or it could be something you've thought about for a week or two. Maybe you're thinking about, should you leave your job? Should you go out on your own? Should you do this or that? Fast forward. How are you going to feel about this decision in five days? How are you going to feel about this decision in five weeks? How about in five years? And a lot of times you'll be surprised at how differently um, that affects you. I use it sometimes. I, I've never, okay, I've never done any road rage, but I'm the kind of person like you cut me off. I used to be. I'm like tailing you now. It's like, oh, I can't believe you cut me off, you know? And I had to learn, is this doing me any good? How will I feel about the fact that this person cut me off in uh, five hours, right? And, and definitely not in five weeks or five years. And kind of running through the, that fast forward through your head, it'll cause you to make dif- decisions differently than you would have, and you'll have less regrets. Well, as a recovering hothead myself, I mean, I, I grew up and I, some of the decisions I made as a kid because of my temper are just shocking now looking back at them. And it's sort of weird that I, I had the success I had in corporate life because I was in a sense very stoic. In a sense, I played the game very well and I never allowed my emotions to get any like super, super high or super, super low. But also I remembered the value of pausing and just saying, I'm not going to address this right now. I'm not going to react. I'm going to think. And that pause button is so valuable to remember throughout just, and, and also in your personal life. We, you know, I, one of the things I love about your book is you also talk about your, your, you know, how it's helped you in your marriage. Uh, and, and also just generally, it's just like as a parent, we use emotional intelligence through everything. It doesn't just limit itself to interactions at work. And so I'm a huge believer in the power of taking a moment and also taking ourselves out of a situation if we're going to act or do or say something that we're going to ultimately regret. Because you know, I ask a lot of people what their regrets are. Most people don't have regrets except almost everybody has a regret about what they've said to somebody or how they've treated somebody. And those are the regrets that you, you feel bad about and that you, you, you just never like having. So thank you for sharing those tips. Fantastic. I do want to talk about feedback because another thing that I completely like jumped up and down and was hooting and hollering when I saw this in your book is this idea that feedback is a gift. I mean, I have a slide deck that I shared and literally I could picture it now where it was a, a, a present and, it, the t- and literally it said feedback is a gift. And I hope more people will embrace that because from my perspective, one of the biggest challenges we see in 
corporate world is how feedback is delivered and how it's received. And uh, I had somebody that came to Tesla that talked about feedback. And one of the suggestions he made is that you create a culture where everyone asks for feedback. Uh, I know one of the things you say in your book is that, you know, how you accept the feedback, but also asking permission to give the feedback. Do you mind if I share this? And and I, I love that. And it's sort of a version of what this other gentleman was saying, David Rock. And, and what David Rock said is that create this environment where you're asking for feedback, you're proactive about it because it, it lowers the tension, the people are scared to get feedback. I mean, there's so many layers to it. We could do a whole podcast just on this. <laughs> it's true. But, it's um, true. And I don't want to steal your thunder too much, but I'm, I'm curious, like you made the decision to put feedback as a gift in your book. Why did you make that decision? And why do you feel it is so uh, vitally important? Well, when you talk about emotional intelligence, one of the hardest things I think for any of us, for any person, it's natural that if somebody gives you, you know, we what we traditionally refer to as negative feedback, that's how we take it negatively, you know, and it, it gets us down and, you know, we don't want to hear it. And why? Because no one likes to be told that they're wrong. Many times we put effort into something and then, you know, someone's tearing it down, even if their goal is to just help depending on how they say it or depending on our own emotions and how we take feedback, many times we take it the wrong way. And this goes into the, the science of it. There's a piece in towards the middle of your brain called the amygdala. And you know some of your listeners might know about this, but when you feel attacked, that's the emotional processor of the brain and that takes over. And you start, you stop using the front part of the brain where you usually reason about things. Mm. And now, so when someone gives you neg- what we call negative feedback, you feel attacked and you shut down or you want to fight or defend yourself or do any of these things. And so that's why I said, you got to think about feedback differently. Feedback is a gift because nine times out of 10, if someone tells you something, even if they, you know, maybe they didn't deliver it the right way, maybe they were blunt, maybe whatever, but there's going to be some level of truth to it. Okay. And so we have to be able to take the value of it. And I compare feedback to a diamond, right? So diamond isn't all shiny and pretty when you get it out of the, when they mine it, it's dark and crusty and it has to be cut and polished. So that's like, even if you get, you know, bluntly delivered feedback, it's like, but there's some value in there. You have to cut it and polish it and find, okay, because even if they're wrong, right? Nine times out of 10, there's going to be some truth, something you can pull out of there. But even if they're wrong, it's all about perception. It's all mm. about um, this is this is how they perceive what you're saying. And guess what? Even if they're wrong, if that's how they perceive, perceive what you're saying, there's other people out there that are going to perceive what you're saying or what you're doing that way. You can't take the emotions out of it because the emotions are there. But if you can use some of those methods we talked about, like the pause, take a step back when someone gives you negative feedback. And somebody gave me really great advice the other day that I had never heard this before. They said, whenever you get feedback, don't respond to it. Take at least at least a day, better is two days before you mm. give a response. And that makes so much difference, Billy. And I, like I said, I'd never thought of it from that perspective. Sure. But that was also a game changer for me because, you know, as much as I talk about feedback, it still hurts to get negative feedback. But I feel very different about that same negative feedback two days later. Right. So I thought that was a great tip. Last question, final word. It's what are you most excited about that you're working on right now? Where can the audience find you? And any any last final thoughts just to impart with the audience? 
Yeah, so big, big project right now, which I was already working on, but with the new post-COVID-19 world, it became number one priority, which is an EQ-applied course. So it's not just uh, a rehash of the book. We, t- we use the book as a foundation, but I, you know, the, I wrote the book. It's been out almost two years, and I started writing it two years ago. So a lot of new examples, a lot of stuff I've learned since then, a lot of the stories and practical examples that I couldn't put in the book are going to go into this course, but it's still going to be a lot of quick and dirty tips, things that you can, you know, put into practice um, right away every day. And that's what I'm working on right now. And we're hoping for a a September, October launch, but we'll see. Yeah. So hope uh, listeners will, will check that out. Um, other than that, you can find me on, um, you know, I tell people LinkedIn because uh, even though my um, network has grown huge, I'm still able to respond to most messages on LinkedIn. So if you want to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, um, that might be where we met. I don't know if that's right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, you can read my stuff on uh, Inc.com um, or check out the book. And, uh, and that's it. And parting words is um, it's actually on the, the front of the book, I think, because there's all these scientific explanations for emotional intelligence, what it is. I try to simplify it, boil it down. Emotional intelligence is making emotions work for you instead of against you. And I think that's something uh, we should all try to do. And I, I've seen tremendous value in my life from trying to do that. So I hope uh, listeners will will check into that, trying to make emotions work for them instead of against them. Awesome. Awesome, man. So excited to see your course. So excited to see the work you're doing. It's so, so important. And it's near and dear to my heart. Something that I truly believe is the, the key to building relationships, understanding people and, and people in my mind, are the most important thing. They're what make us happy. And if we could manage ourselves in a way that will allow us to thrive as we build relationships, as we get to know people and bring them into our lives, we will be that much more fulfilled and happy. Justin Bariso, thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you, Billy. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.